Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and work with children, teenagers and their families, particularly in the areas of resilience, learning strengths and well-being. I'm also the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking with people who are experts in their area in terms of mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being part of the Generation Next podcast group. Thank you. Today, of course, we're very fortunate to be with Marie Vakakis, who's an emotional coach and a mental health uh, social worker and family therapist who spends quite a lot of her time helping teenagers and families to get their heads around the wonderful world of feelings. I am, of course, uh, Andrew Fuller and uh, the author of many books, including The A to Z of Feeling. So lots of interesting things to talk about uh, with Marie about this area. So today we're going to cover basically emotions and why they're important, of course, to understand. And then a bit of research on how we might go about emotion-based coaching or emotion coaching. And then really to think about some of the stages of uh, life and how these things differ as we go through. And then to think about some of the applications in terms of schools and homes, and then we'll kind of talk a bit more about just Marie's own personal work. So thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate your time, Marie. Um, so tell us a little bit about the background of emotion coaching, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a pleasure to be here with you today. The emotion coaching is looking at, a, it's a parenting philosophy, really looking at how we learn and develop our ability to identify emotions and then act from that. So we know that um, often those things are learned in early to middle childhood and then they're further developed in adolescence. Um, and I don't tend to work much with children. So I guess my area of interest is more in how that looks in adolescence. And it's looking at how do we, you know, how do we show awareness of our emotions? So noticing what our body's feeling, what are the sensations happening for us? What is that then triggering? So does, do we then have a thought? Do we think, oh, I don't like this nasty feeling. I want to avoid it. Um, and then kind of our action. So it, it kind of can sit in a little bit with the CBT model, but we're more looking at from an emotion coaching perspective, it's letting people feel their emotion, put a word to it and then sit with that. So you mentioned CBT, and I think it's interesting to think about that for a moment, because the world of feelings and emotions used to be simple. You know, you, you have think something, you have a sort of stimulus, you think something, and you get a feeling out of the end of it. The world's changed a bit in terms of their understanding of that, and I wonder whether you'd like just to talk a bit about that. Yeah, so emotion coaching, um, it has five basic steps. So we're looking at, um, you know, if we're thinking about it in the context of a parent and child, it's being aware of someone's emotions. So this could look like they come home from school, they throw their bag on the floor and they grunt. And you might think, okay, one angle I could take is pick up your bag off the floor. What are you doing? You know, your bag's not supposed to be there. Or we can pause and think, I wonder what's happening for them. So it's recognizing the emotion and then it's letting them know, or you having an idea that that's an opportunity for connection. So thinking, oh, maybe they've had a bad day. Maybe something's happened on the way home. Maybe they failed a maths test. So it's really just taking a moment to pause and recognise the emotion and then listen with empathy and validate that feeling. So instead of maybe jumping straight to a pick your bag up, we're running late for soccer practice or something else is happening, saying, hey, you seem a little bit, and you could you know, take a guess, upset, angry, 
what's going on so by labeling that emotion that's really how we start to learn them as children it's oh maybe the baby's hungry I'll feed it maybe they're tired I'll try and soothe them so we start to get a sense of what those feelings are from our parents and caregivers growing up and adolescence is a time where we really start to consolidate and um, further develop those skills so you've got the kid who's come home thrown their bag on the floor that might be an opportunity to say looks like you maybe you've had a bad day you're feeling upset and then listening with empathy, letting them feel that. Maybe they don't know exactly how to describe their feelings. So kind of using upset is a really good one for younger kids, but then it could be, you know, oh, you're feeling that um, I failed my maths test. Oh, do you feel disappointed? Or maybe they asked a person out on a date. So it's like, oh, is that, do you feel rejected? So trying to really help them label that. And then after you do all that, there's an opportunity to say, okay, well, that's totally fine. Next time, it's probably not the best idea to throw your bag on the floor or yell at your sister or growl at the, grumble at the dog. So it's it's a five-stage process of recognising the emotion, seeing it as an opportunity to connect, empathising and validating the feeling, helping them express it, and then, if necessary, setting boundaries. And the research shows us that that's really important for adolescent development, can reduce risk-taking, it can improve connection with family. So it has a lot of benefits by working from that. Um, I guess, position. There used to be quite a debate, particularly, I suppose, in the area of angry feelings, about whether it was better to express them and divert them, or whether it was better to suppress them. I wonder if you have a thought about that. I mean, I think think anger is one... (laughs) It can cover so many emotions. So some of us will get angry, but through emotion coaching, if you've learned to understand that maybe it's actually rejection or disappointment or shame, um, frustration, uh, maybe regret. So sometimes there's something underneath the anger. Um, I don't think suppressing it's a great idea. Anger in itself isn't a bad emotion. It's the action that you take. So being angry and taking a few deep breaths or kind of, you know, um, just maybe having a bit of a vent, I think that's fine. Being angry and punching a hole in the wall, that's not okay. So the feeling itself inherently is not bad. It's the behaviour that follows that can be helpful or unhelpful. So anger can be a really helpful thing. You know, if you're angry that there are cars speeding down your street, you might write a petition to your local council. You might get a group of people together to um, formally kind of present something to get a speed bump put in or, you know. Um, it can help us get a sense of what's important and fight injustice or really advocate for ourselves or it can lead to kicking over a rubbish bin being destructive so it's the the feeling itself is not the problem it's actually I think the behavior and being able to do that in a safe way. So do you think our feeling literacy our emotional literacy our awareness change as we go through childhood and adolescence? It, it does. We learn and we develop. So just like with any other skill, we're really influenced by our primary carers when we're growing up. Um, and then as we include teachers, other people's parents, cousins, like we might expand that um, and learn different things, partners, and it can teach us new things. Um, but we, I think the thing that maybe takes a little while to change is what we call um, meta emotion. So it's how we feel about certain feelings. So if you grew up in a household where... Um, your parents through maybe not explicitly, but let's say sadness was just the feeling that your parents found ick. So they would try to avoid you feeling sad. So if your goldfish died, instead of telling you your goldfish died, uh, maybe they just went and replaced it. So you just kind of over time develop this idea that it's not okay to be sad, 
because my parents tried to do everything they could to avoid me being sad. So then we develop a belief around feeling sad is not okay. And so I think that can be harder to challenge. And I find when I do this work with parents, that's the real light bulb moment when they think, oh, wow, I didn't realise that I found it uncomfortable to display sadness or, yeah, we're, we're really, we don't like to display, um, you know, pride. For some families, they want to, they think pride can make you kind of have an inflated ego so they never say we're proud of you. So we have these different beliefs about feelings and I think that's a little bit harder to shift but I don't know there might be research on it but I'm not really um up to date with that so when we um well with people who've had awful times sometimes traumatic times of course what I think it does is it blocks some of the information channels in the body and so they often get numbness or failure to really be aware of different aspects of their physical sense and I think that relates to their feeling world that essentially it's almost as if there are some clients I mean obviously kids if you ask them how are you feeling they'll often answer don't know but beyond that sort of teenage kind of brush off there's also a real don't know that they basically have almost like a dislocation of particular feelings which is sort of a an extension of what you've just been saying in terms of these particular feelings not being acceptable can you give us an example of how you might work with somebody where you become aware that they just they've got no idea what say I don't know disappointment or rejection or whatever it might be uh, is. Look, I think I mean the trauma context is again very separate and very different. So we can have um, different psychosomatic responses and different um, impacts on memory and learning and, and that kind of thing. But in a general population, I don't think it's just teenagers that really have that. I don't know. Um, you know, I work with a lot of adults and I do a lot of couples therapy and. You know, adults sometimes will say, I don't know, and they don't recognise, they're really disconnected from the physical sensations in their body and what that means. So you'll see in little kids, anxiety really presents as I've got a tummy ache or I'm feeling sick. They haven't quite linked that to I'm scared or I'm worried. So adolescence is no different too. We start to scaffold the learning of those emotions. So sometimes it is breaking it down to basics, like, okay, what happened? What did you feel in your body? And really breaking it down to, okay, my stomach was kind of churning. Okay, that could be fear. It could be worry. So sometimes it's a lot around understanding the body's response and then trying to label it. And we might just start off with really general happy, sad, angry, frustrated, like a few kind of really broad feelings. And then we might dig down to rejection, um, disappointment, feeling isolated. So it I don't think we ever stop. Like I think I'm even developing more and more the differences um, in those nuanced feelings. But we really just start by focusing on what's the body doing um, and then how do we kind of link that into a bit of a feeling. So, you know, things can kind of, our buckets can get full by the end of the day and we might just kind of tip over and some people haven't realised that throughout the day their stress is increasing or they're getting kind of anxious and their bodies could be really showing that. So they could be having clenched fists or clenched jaws or tight shoulders. Maybe their stomach's kind of all knotted up and then one small thing happens and it seems like they've exploded, but they haven't recognised that throughout the day they've been under stress or they've been worried or anxious or something else has been happening. So we all could benefit from really learning that a little bit more. One of the, the common experiences that I have in my therapy room is that people that come in with fibromyalgia or autoimmune conditions or sometimes psoriasis or chronic fatigue are often disconnected 
in their feeling world. And as they reconnect or reintegrate, they heal. And I don't know whether that's, Maria, an experience you've had or want to comment on. I don't know of any real research that backs it up in terms of what I've read, but it's an interesting observation therapeutically. I think some of the the things that come to mind when you say that is the literature around um, something like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and some real mindfulness-based practices, to which I don't use um, a whole lot in my work, but I do bring a bit of mindfulness into some of the approaches. But I really think that it can be quite overwhelming to start with because we're really good at numbing those feelings down. But as we start to integrate and bring awareness of our body sensations, and we change the relationship we have with either discomfort or other sort of sensations, you can find that integration can be quite healing. But I think for some people, it can also be overwhelming because it's like, but I had numbed all this before, or I had kind of segmented it or kind of put it into pieces and I had mental health here and physical health here. And, and um, it can be quite um, overwhelming, but I can see that it would make sense that as you start to integrate it, if we're, in poor mental health, in particular things around anxiety, you know, we can have autoimmune problems. We can have, um, you know, might be uh, immune system might be down. We might get colds more. We've got high blood pressure. Like there are physical things happening when our heart rate is up and when our body is constantly stressed and anxious that would have an impact on so many physical health conditions. And then, you know, you might get diagnosed with irritable bowel um, syndrome or some other thing that might actually be, in its root causes, an anxiety base um, or a fear-based kind of, I think, thing that you're working through. Is that kind of what your experience is? Is that what you're sort of thinking? Yeah, that's 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. So all of this really uh, has a strong research base from John and Julie Gottman's work at the yeah. Gottman Institute. Um, I don't know whether you want to just tell us a little bit about the research that underpins this the emotion coaching framework, um, I guess John and Julie Gottman are the most renowned for that. And they looked at their, I guess, area of expertise is in um, couples therapy. And so they have what they call the love, lo love lab, where they literally had couples in an apartment wired up to all this tech to kind of check heart rate. And they would get like blood tests and saliva samples to kind of see what was happening physiologically as they would go about their day fighting, getting along, quarreling, bickering, ignoring each other, doing their own thing. So they wanted to kind of measure what was happening. And they broke relationships down into two areas, the masters and the disasters. And they found that what the masters had in common were a certain number of things that formed the Gottman couples therapy approach, which is kind of its own thing. But emotion, being able to identify emotions and respond accordingly was one of the key bits of that research. So Tuning into Kids, which was a program that took in some attachment-based theory and the emotion coaching kind of um, supported parents around developing that. And then there was Tuning into Teens, which is one that Melbourne University developed using those same philosophies. So it's really looking at what we know works really well in couples work and then sort of almost reverse engineering. How do we teach that to kids developmentally appropriate stages from infancy? So um, you know, some people might do something like a circle of security attachment based parenting course then tuning into kids, tuning into teens and sort of just enhance their skills and their awareness of how to teach these to their children. Um, foster parents use them a lot as well. I think some of the out of home care services teach it to their um, staff members. So it's quite a, um, a valuable skill to de-escalate um, to improve um, relationships, connection, intimacy. 
um, and be able to sort of reduce risk-taking, have healthy boundaries. So it's quite a robust um, concept that comes a lot from the couples therapy research. So it's a bit, a bit interesting. And, and researchers tend to pick and um, adapt from other people's um, research and literature as well. So they can't take, and I'm sure they would say the same, you know, 100% credit. They build on work from other uh, researchers as well. Can I just ask you a bit of a left field question? I was just contemplating as you were talking about that. But, um, you know, individual people have feelings, obviously. Families have feeling patterns. But I just wondered, on, based on your work, whether you think populations, cultures or countries have particular patterns of either not acknowledging or amplifying particular feelings over other ones and whether you've seen any patterns there. I mean, obviously it's general, I understand that. So I'm not asking you to kind of be too definitive, but at the same time, it's an interesting thing to think about as a population. Do you think that we sometimes have difficulty in expressing a particular emotion? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at that idea of meta emotions where we have feelings about feelings, that can be family-based and then broader culture-based. And there has been some research looking at how we, if we have language for a feeling, then we can identify it. So there's, you know, one that comes to mind is um, the German word schadenfreude, which is kind of a little bit of, kind of a little bit of happiness when something bad happens to someone who deserves it. We might say karma, but schadenfreude is a very different feeling. Once you have that language for it, you can then put feeling to that thing. Oh, I know what that feeling is. So we do have culturally different feelings that we can identify um, and then things that we know are acceptable or not acceptable to talk about or to feel. So I think we feel a lot of different feelings and that might be universal, but what we label them, how we describe them and what we think is okay to express and how we act on it is very different. So, um, you know, I think of something like grief as well. There are some countries where, you know, at a funeral, they might dance and they might sing and they might celebrate life and they might grieve out aloud. And in other cultures, it's a private affair and it's a real sense of mourning and they wear black and they don't have people come. Like there's different ways that we can express grief. Um, and that thing can be, you know, socially constructed and we observe what we see in our friends and families and in our community. And Australia is so multicultural, so we have probably a really interesting mix of all of those different things as well. So the, the British stiff upper lip, for example, where it's difficult to talk about perhaps personal feelings. So it would be interesting to actually to invite listeners uh, to comment uh, and maybe speculate on what do you think Australians do find difficult to express? I think it'd be a fascinating conversation to have with our listeners. But anyway, let's, let's move on. Uh, so the, the applications of emotion coaching in schools and families, can you tell us a little bit about that, Marie? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, instead of jumping straight to discipline or telling someone off, if we're looking at an emotion coaching model, it's starting to recognise all of those interactions as an opportunity to connect. So we, you know, the research is really strong at saying, you know, if we have that strong connection, you know, and have higher emotional awareness that it predicts, um, you know, better mental health outcomes. We have lower rates of things like um, the physical pains and physical sensations like stomach aches and that kind of thing. Um, you know, good emotion coaching and good emotional awareness can give you sort of, you know, you can regulate yourself more if you can say, instead of saying, I'm, or just being angry and putting a hole in the wall, you can express, I'm feeling angry right now and you can take appropriate action. So you don't have to get it right all the time because we're humans and it's almost impossible. But starting to, you know, like thinking about that example of, you know, someone coming home and throwing their bag on the floor, 
that's a valuable example to think about, even with your partner or if you're a teacher with a student. So instead of, you know, going straight to the grumble, grumble, what have you done wrong or telling you off, it's you look a bit sad and just pausing or, you know, if your partner comes home, they're late instead of saying, oh, you're late again and the lasagna's burnt, it's you look like you've had a tough day. So it's starting to help them identify because they might not know or they might be caught up in that feeling. So we know that over time that that builds really good connection. And especially with young people, if you've got good connection, they're more likely to come to you when things go pear-shaped. Um, you can set clearer boundaries. There's low, lower risk-taking behaviour. There's you know, improved connections with their friends and with other kind of uh, important adults in their life. So it's a really valuable skill, but it might mean that we need to upskill ourselves into well, what is that emotion and what could be happening for them? And are they sad? Are they angry? Are they tired? Are they disappointed? Because sometimes, you know, we, we see teenagers, especially in the older year levels, and they're like, they're tall and they've kind of puberty's hit and they're kind of gangly. We think they're adults, they can function all right. But some of this is still really new to them. So they might need help sort of identifying. It sounds like you're angry or you look frustrated or Mm, what's happening there and then you can after you go through those five stages the boundaries and appropriate response is the last one there so it doesn't mean they get away with everything but there's a slightly different approach to elicit a more productive result I guess if you're doing it consistently over time. So we hear a lot about this term emotional regulation, you know, this sort of wonderful skill of rebalancing yourself when you're out of sorts, basically becoming a calm, serene, functioning human yeah. being who's aware and all of that kind of stuff. It's an interesting concept. How elusive do you think it truly is? Well, it's hard to regulate your emotion if you don't know what you're feeling. So it's really hard to regulate, um, you know, from anger or sadness or frustration if you don't have the language to even describe it. So that emotional regulation is really valuable. But before that, you need to also know the feeling and you need to have some awareness of I'm angry because I'm frustrated because I didn't get the results I wanted on my test. That might require a different regulation or self-soothing technique too. I asked a person out and they said no and I feel rejected. So it's really valuable. And we need to emotionally soothe. We need to self-soothe and we also need to be able to you know lean on important people in our lives to help us with that and we saw we see in the Gottman's work um, the master couples are the ones who could do that who when they're getting flooded or uh, flipping their lids so they might be concepts that your listeners are aware of um, and if you're not you can kind of search for the flipping your lid um, YouTube clip there's some really good stuff out there being able to calm yourself down and think from a more logical kind of rational place is, is beneficial across the board so I don't know if it's, um, yeah, if that kind of exactly answers your question, but it, it is a very valuable skill, but you need to know what you're upset about or what the feeling is that you're feeling first before you can, I guess, soothe it. So our understanding of emotions and feelings has come a long way in the last few years. Do you have a sort of sense of where we're next in this field, where, um, where, where we should be going next in terms of our programs or our... Um, I think this is starting to take off in terms of more and more parents are wrecking. And, and the, I guess parenting has changed a lot um, from being very, you know, maybe schools kind of do this or parents kind of do like segmented. But I think a lot of families are starting to recognise the value that, and role that they can play in developing sort of um, general positive well-being. So, you know, if I think about emotion coaching or just sort of understanding of emotions, I think they're really, it's really positive um, and maybe 
we need to keep just working on that and also recognizing I think the bit that I've noticed is in particular with um, things like anxiety people are really good at labeling it but then they don't want it so I think the next challenge will be it's okay to be distressed or it's okay to feel uncomfortable so the next bit I think will be recognizing I'm feeling anxious but that's okay Mm -hmm. I don't have to get rid of it I don't have to avoid it but really being able to tolerate discomfort so um, I'm noticing a big increase in young people seeing me for anxiety um, and then they don't know that it's actually a healthy emotion and we need to feel anxious. We don't need to feel it all the time, but if we didn't feel anxious about anything, we wouldn't do anything. We'd be lazy, we'd be bored, um, but some anxiety or some stress actually gets us motivated and to kick up the butt and we can be you know, prepared. And so I think the next bit will be increasing that awareness, but then sitting with there are no good and bad feelings. They're just feelings and they're all okay. And we don't have to avoid them. We don't have to numb them down. We don't want to overly attach to warm, fuzzy feelings like happiness or joy. They all come and go. They're all okay. They're all normal. They're all healthy. And and just sort of see that as a rich tapestry of, you know, being alive. (laughs) So there's no wonderful gizmo like, I don't know, a skull cap that will be called the emotion regulator that you can put on your head and kind of rebalance your, your feelings or anything like that. Basically. I don't know. It sounds like a good idea. Maybe we'll look into it. <laughs> so if listeners would like to uh, get in touch with you, how could they do that, Marie? Yeah, so I'm the practice owner of uh, the Therapy Hub. So you can check us out on thetherapyhub.com.au. I'm where, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and we have a Facebook group. So there's all, all those sorts of ways. So I run Tuning Into Teens and Mental Health First Aid as well as um, private practice. So yeah, a lot of different ways to find me if you need to. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I want to really say that how, how valuable the work that you're doing is. I mean, while dealing with the external world is demanding, if you have no real understanding of your internal world, it's almost impossible because you're always kind of left flummoxed and wondering what the heck's going on inside me and how, do, how should I utilise that? So this internal interior world within people is such a rich world to understand well and as you said in your your statements that basically that the more you investigate it the finer discriminations between particular feeling states is which equips you of course to have greater emotional flexibility in your life and that of course translates into better relationships so thank you so much for your time today we'll keep in touch absolutely Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people, and also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours, and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much, and I hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you. Find more resources for supporting the mental health and well-being of young people on the Generation Next website. While you're there, consider becoming a member of the online learning hub, where you can access practical sessions from leading experts on demand. There are many sessions available in the ever-expanding learning library, and each session has an instantly downloadable certificate of completion, which you may even be able to use to claim professional development. 
you can also feel great about your membership with all proceeds supporting Generation Next's not-for-profit initiatives, including this podcast. You may also like to read more in Generation Next's Young Minds books. Both books contain practical and easy-to-read chapters on a range of topics from Australia's leading practitioners. Andrew Fuller's chapter, What is Resilience and How to Do It, is in the book Growing Happy, Healthy Young Minds, available on the Generation Next website at www.generationnext.com.au. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please share this podcast and your learnings with others. Until next time, thanks for listening and for all you do to support young people and our communities.